to continue our exploration, investigation of this theme of self-view and um, transcending self-view and uh, the habits of conceit, conceiving, mana, manyati. In uh, one of the question periods, the use of the practice of investigation of the question, who am I, came up. Um, I mentioned that as the very first kind of meditation practice that Ajahn Sumedho used when he was a layman back in the early 60s, when he was in the Peace Corps in uh, Borneo. He learned this practice from a set of books called Chan and Zen Training by Charles Luke. One of the sections was a series of Dhamma talks given by Venerable Master Shu Yun. So some of you might well be familiar with that name, others of you are probably not. This, as I understand it, was from a retreat that he led in Shanghai at Dragonflower Monastery in 1953, when he was 114 years old. So still leading retreats uh, at the age of 114. He lived until he was 120. He'd made a vow to be a monk for 100 years, and he kept that vow. He was also notable in China and was so highly respected by all of the different lineages of uh, Buddhist practice in China, the, uh, the Vinaya lineage, the Chan meditation lineage, the mantra recitation lineage, the esoteric lineage and the sutra study lineage. They all appointed him the head, uh, the kind of patriarch of the five lineages, which apparently had never happened before, or very, very, very rarely. So he was a very highly respected, very eminent monk, and he'd already um, been close to death uh, many, many times, uh, also having been uh, beaten unconscious by the Red Guard when uh, they were trying to suppress all aspects of Buddhism after the communist takeover in China. And uh, he survived that initial beating. He was already about 100 years old at that time, 1949. He was born in 1839, so he was 110 when he was beaten up by the Red Guard. He survived that, and then they came back again, and they beat him with iron bars. And he was in a coma for a long time. His bones were broken, his organs were damaged, and, and his disciples were gathered around. And when, when he regained consciousness, he was so um, beaten up and, and bruised and, and uh, in pain. They said, yeah, Shurfu, Shurfu, please, you have great compassion. Don't, don't stay alive just for our benefit. He said, it's true, I'm deliberately staying alive and recovering from these injuries, but it's not for you, it's for the soldiers who beat me. If I died, their bad karma would be so terrible, I don't want to be responsible for that. So I'm staying alive for them. So, one example of great compassion. <laughs> it's a very good one. So this retreat that he gave was after that had all happened. This was like two or three years later that he gave this retreat. And the Dhamma talks from this retreat were recorded and published in English by Charles Luke. And in that retreat, he spells out in detail this method of investigating what's called the Hua To, forgive my bad Chinese pronunciation, which means that the head and the tail. The head is the question, you know, who am I? And the tail is the, the silence that comes after, or the space after the question has been asked. My knowledge of um, Sri Ramana Maharshi's teachings is quite limited, but uh, I also understand that he used a very, very similar method investigating the, the question, who am I? And um, in both cases, even though one's coming from southern India and the other's coming from China, the point of asking this question is you're not looking for a conceptual answer. You know, your, your name is not the right answer. <laughs> 
that uh, it's a, a way of looking into those what, exactly what we're doing this week the presumptions about self-view that by looking into that question uh, who am I then the uh, sort of layers of attachment and identification become apparent and, and slowly fall away so I wanted to introduce this uh, as a, a methodology that, that we can use it does require a certain amount of steadiness of attention, just like I was saying with regards to vipassana meditation. If your mind is sort of <laughs> filled with wandering thoughts and distracted here, there, and everywhere, just in a, sort of dropping the question, who am I, in the mix is, is kind of like a crowded airport. It's like <laughs> it's going to get lost in all the traffic. So uh, there needs to be a bit of uh, mental space in order for this to actually function effectively as a practice. So the way that it's used, again, I can't speak for the approach that Sri Ramana used because I haven't been introduced to that, but certainly the, the method that uh, Ajahn Sumedho used and, and also in the, uh, the text uh, as transcribed by Charles Luke that you have from Master Shu Yu and it's quite clearly uh, laid out. So uh, you establish the mind with as much concentration and steadiness, spaciousness as possible, and then into that space of the mind, the question, who am I, is dropped. And the more real a question it is, it's not just repeating the words, but there's a real inquiry, like, well, who am I? There's a, a meaning, <laughs> there's an interest, a curiosity behind uh, the question. And uh, once again, that the point is not to find a conceptual answer. There isn't a, a quote-unquote right answer or that there's a clever puzzle, like a crossword clue, like, ah, oh, yes, three across, that's what it is. You, know? <laughs> it's, uh, you can't look at the back and see what the answers to the questions are. It's, it doesn't work in that way. It's, it's a, a question that is put to reveal the presumptions that we are making. So just like with the Buddha with Vachagota saying, the way you put the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. In a way, this, this practice works in, in a similar fashion, which I'll, I'll get onto momentarily. So when that question is dropped into the space of the mind, if there's careful attention, then you'll notice that uh, before any kind of uh, mental creations appear, there's a space, there's a gap before the thinking starts, so that the, the head is the question, and the tail, kind of in this instance, the tail is the important bit. <laughs> the gap after the question has been posed, before all of the thinking, the ideation begins, that's in a way the point. And because in that moment, all of the usual habits of self creation and identification are suspended, even if it's just for a moment, for a half a second, or a second, then that's, say, normal stream of eye-making eye and mind-making, ahankara, mamankara, that, that's interrupted, that breaks up. And so the gap in this instance, that's the important part. In a way, that's the answer to the question. <laughs> and so then what happens is, for most people, is that then that, that gap, that space opens up and then to sustain the attention just in that spacious quality where the the habits of eye-making and mind-making, the self-view, have fallen away. And then, inevitably, you hear a sound, there's a bird's tweeting, or there's a, a feeling in your leg, or a, a thought arises in the mind, well, this is really good, wow, this is an interesting practice. <laughs> and off you go, writing a commentary about the practice. And then a commentary on the commentary, and so on. So, 
Once you realize, okay, the, the mind's got distracted, bring it to a quality of stillness, spaciousness once again. Wait till there, there's a, an openness and inner spaciousness, and then drop the question back in again. Who, who am I? Again, the point is to keep the attention on that space, that gap that comes after the question. This practice is also called in Chinese gong an, or in Japanese koan. So koan practice, uh, many people have seen these sort of impossible questions that uh, they developed in, in Japan, but also in, in China, the, the lineage of Chan practice founded by Lin Qi in Chinese, Rinzai in Japanese. They used a lot of these koan uh, questions. There's a whole books full of uh, them. The, the Blue Cliff Record, I believe, is a, a whole collection of these uh, koans from the Japanese tradition. But a lot of them derive originally from China. But this one is the one that uh, Venerable Master Xu Yun uh, used and is described in that retreat, in, in which Ajahn Sumedha used for for a couple of years while he was in the Peace Corps and then when he was in Thailand and when he became a novice and was in his uh, retreat kuti for, for one year in the little monastery in, in Nongkai. And so he had found very good results from this practice. And as I was saying yesterday, he was very surprised when Ajahn Chah said, yeah, just carry on doing that. Even though he'd never even heard of that kind of a practice before, he thought, well, you know, go with the results. But to go back to the practice itself... One of the, the aspects of it, and in a way that revelation of what presumptions are being made when you put the question, you know, who am I? It's quite common after a little while for there to be the intuition, hang on a minute, who isn't quite the right word. It isn't really a who, it's more of a, a what. Uh, what. What am I? So it's quite all right to change the question. It's not like, oh, the instruction was, it has to be, who am I? So it's quite all right to let the the question uh, modulate, because the point is not the question. The point is the the interruption of self-view and uh, eye-making and mind-making. That's the point. So then to let the question change, to modulate, to be, uh, what, what am I? Again, it's going to be different for different people, but along the way... You can find that, well, even the word I sounds weird. It's like, again, that intuition can arise informed by the wisdom faculty of our own citta, our own heart. Say, well, I, that's not really it either. It's like, what is is this? What is it? And in Korea, actually, that's the the question they use most commonly in this Gung An practice is, uh, what, what is it? And so in developing this practice, using this practice, feel free to, to let the question change. Use your own language, of course. <laughs> you don't have to say it in English. You can say it in Hindi or Urdu or uh, French or German or whatever. The point is not the language. The point is the, the space uh, that opens up. Because in that moment, when that self-view and conceit uh, breaks up, then in that moment the mind is awake uh, there's a quality of spaciousness, a simplicity, a peacefulness. It's not like an ecstatic, sort of blissful kind of wah, kind of blast of energy or bright lights. It's just, in a way, a quiet normality. <laughs> it's peaceful, it's clear, it's spacious, and a, a sense of limitlessness or openness. And no sense of I who is the experiencer. The I can then be seen to be sort of coming in, but again, that is a really good opportunity to see 
the I, the person being born. Like, from that spacious, open, non-personhood, non-personal quality, then, boop, you know, oh, I'm really getting somewhere with this. <laughs> that I-ness is kind of clearly visible because it's got a plain backdrop against which it can be felt and, and seen and known. So uh, again, I would say if you use this as a practice, just to let it develop and take shape as it will. So sometimes it just can reduce to the word, what? <laughs> or just a question mark, without any kind of word. Just to highlight that sense of a, of a doer, a knower, an experience of that the mind is creating the I formation, the me and mine, that, that those are mental objects, they're, they're patterns of mental activity that's so familiar, so ordinary, so normal that we don't notice them, just like the, the force of gravity or the, the change of light during the day. It's just, it just happens all the time, happens every day, so it's, it's not noticeable. But we're using this kind of a practice to, to notice what is usually unnoticeable. This is one of the, the areas where having a lot of intelligence and a really bright mind is not incredibly helpful. <laughs> because if we have a, a mind that likes to explain things and figure things out and, and have a, a good narrative about what's going on, that can easily sort of jump in and start writing a thesis, uh, you know, at least a poem or something about it and clarifying and naming. And it's, I'm not putting down intelligence or brightness of mind, but in this kind of a practice it can be a bit of an obstruction because it can be so quick to come in and say, oh, this is really interesting because... you know, and off it goes. And, and you say, no, <laughs> who is doing all this brilliant thinking? You know, who does this belong to? So you can use it by changing a question, letting that modulate. Also, another variant of this practice is not to use a question, but to use a statement, uh, just the word I. Uh, and if you let the mind be really spacious and clear and steady, just thinking the word I, even as I say that, this is the kind of weirdness, it's like, huh, what? So that, that in the heart which is going, what? That's the thing to trust. It says, what the heck is that? This I. And that strangeness, like what's that referring to? What's that word I, that concept I? What's that here that that word is referring to? What is the referent? What, what is this referring to? Oh. <laughs> and so that weirdness around just the word I, even though it can be a little bit sort of disorienting in this practice, that's a useful sign, a useful signal. Because it's showing that even though the I, me, mind feelings are so common, so ordinary, so normal, they, they kind of work by, by moving quickly like a conjurer's hands. You know, the, the, the magician moves their hands very quickly so you can't see how the trick is done. But if you kind of stop the picture or slow it right down, you can see exactly what the conjurer is doing. So the trick doesn't work. So in this kind of a practice, you let the mind be simply open, still, spacious, drop in the word I. Not, not I anything, just I. Or me. This is me. And then that, oh, a kind of almost like vertigo, a kind of uh, dizziness or, or, uh, or imbalance. That's a good sign. <laughs> Not if you fall over and crash on the floor, but, but that sense of, ooh, what's that? That's a good kind of unsettling.
part of this practice is for that unsettling. Uh, another variant is also just to say your own name. Once again, not in a narrative about anything, just let the mind be spacious and open, still as possible, and just drop your name into that space of the mind. And again, our name is so familiar to us, we use it all the time, but then if you really look at it, really do it, then again, there's that same quality of, if I just think the word, Atmaro, something in the heart goes, what the heck is that? <laughs> What's, what's that here that is being referred to by that sound? Oh. <laughs> so these are all different avenues that can be used to use so investigation, wise reflection, to reveal those habits of attitude and habits of mind that are so common so every day, but if they are highlighted, if they're illuminated in this way, then they can be seen through and their limiting and stressful quality can be let go of. Also part of it, uh, it's kind of a, what they call it, a trigger warning. <laughs> this kind of practice can also be deeply threatening to the ego. So if we have got strongly formed habits of self-view and uh, egotistical perspectives, this can shake those habits up quite substantially. Like, you know, if, if I'm not this, then what am I? And so that that can really throw us off balance. And I think the other day when I was giving the, the talk in, in Bulgaria, yeah, I mentioned this when, when I was a teenager, a student, um, about the same time that I met His Holiness Dujam Rinpoche, I had this experience of seeing my face in the mirror and I couldn't get me into the face. It was my face, <laughs> it wasn't anybody else's. I had a beard at the time and sort of bushy hair and I was just looking at this face in the mirror and I couldn't get any me into it and it was really unsettling it, really, it was very freaky uh, I just kept looking at it what's that got to do with what's here and there's like no, at that moment it was chemically induced I confess I, I, didn't, I didn't mention that in Bodhgaya, but uh, I thought under the Bodhi tree I'd leave, I'd leave that out. But uh, there was um, a, a particular brand of marijuana called Durban Poison. Some, some of you might be familiar with Durban Poison uh, was involved in, in the experience. But I wasn't hallucinating. My vision was very clear. There was just no connection between that face and what was looking at the face, what was knowing it. Because up to that point, I'd only known sort of self-centered perspectives in life, and that's the only reference I had. It was very, uh, very freaky, very unsettling. And, and there was a sense, well, if I'm not that, what am I? And then there was a roaring silence. <laughs> so that really was challenging, unsettling. and. Um, I took the refuge that most British people do is I put the kettle on, made a cup of tea, <laughs> made a cup of tea. Let's <laughs> put the kettle on. Just sit down, put the kettle on and take it one step at a time. But I was a student and I had to go to classes and, and tutorials and such like and write essays. So it was, it was very strange, about six weeks. But it was interesting, just to speak on that for a little bit, that some kind of strange intuition that said, don't panic, you're not crazy. 
Yeah. And don't go and see the college psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, you're not crazy. Uh, don't panic. Just stay with this. And so I decided to follow that intuition and just took things one step at a time. And after about six weeks, then it had abated. But it was it was very challenging. So it's a kind of trigger warning, or you know that. Uh, this kind of approach to dismantling our familiar egoic structures can reorient our, our world, can unpick our world in ways that are, are challenging. So there's a, a kind of a warning for the, taking this medicine. You know, the uh, side effects of this practice might include uh, disorientation as well as liberation. But these practices have persisted for many centuries and have been found to be extraordinarily liberating because within the context of Buddha Dhamma, that kind of experience of seeing a face and saying, well, what's that got to do with that which is knowing it? It's like, well, of course, sabay dhamma anatta, all dhammas are not self. So, oh, great. So a few years later, after I come into the monastery and I was living alone in a little hermitage in the southwest of England, and I had another similar non-chemically induced experience just because of solitude and a lot of meditation, I found my mind in the same kind of perception. And it was totally different. It's like, oh yeah, this is great. <laughs> Rather than, you know, everything is weird and wrong, I don't know what to do with this. Having the context of the Buddha's teaching and the teachings on, on not-self, then it all made sense. Because from the ego point of view, that kind of insight is a profound sense of loss. I was this person and now I'm nobody. I'm not that, so what am I? Uh, I'm nothing. But then with the insight of anatta being uh, a backdrop for that, then we can see, well, yeah, that never was me in the first place. <laughs> so it was only a, an impression that was yeah, the result of birth and, and growing up and a language and an education and a family and, and so on and so forth creates the idea that I am this body, this mind, this personality. But that was never the reality in the first place. So from a Buddhist perspective, from that Dhamma perspective, then a very similar experience was, was greatly sort of liberating and delightful rather than horrifying and freaky. Another of the things that I wanted to introduce, at the end of the morning sitting, then we chanted the Nibbana Sutta. Perhaps a few of you weren't here. There seems to be a few more bodies in the room than there were between 6.30 and 7.30. Not taking names, but just a sort of rough head count. We chanted the Nibbana Sutta, the verses on the unconditioned. It's one of a couple of teachings that are very, very helpful to reflect upon, again, in terms of letting go of self. If this body, this personality, this, uh, this sense of I is not absolutely real, what is real? Yesterday and in some of the question sessions, there was this conversation about letting go of the five khandhas and that which is aware of the five khandhas, the five groups that not being a person or not being personal. One of the ways that the, the Buddha speaks about this fundamental reality, this uh, transcendent reality that is, say, outside of the five khandhas or not um, related to the five khandhas, there's a few teachings where he does talk about this. In the Nibbana Sutta, uh, this is the Udana, the Inspired Utterances, chapter 8, uh, Sutta number 3. Udana uh, 8.3 and there's a a series of short teachings he gives about uh, Nibbana and ultimate reality and so this teaching is very worthy of consideration because it's also 
in a way, a linchpin of insight meditation and, and why liberation is possible. So as it says, just to read the English, there is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated and unformed. If there was not this unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, this unformed, freedom from the world of the born, the originated, the created, the formed, would not be possible. But since there is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated and unformed, therefore is freedom possible from the world of the born, the originated, the created and the formed. This is a very profound teaching, one of Ajahn Sumato's favorite teachings. And just before he left Amravati, when he retired, he requested that we include this in our regular daily chanting. So we came up with the Pali and the, the English translation with it and introduced this into our regular chanting because it's, it's an extraordinarily profound teaching. And similar to the, the discussion we were having about that awareness which transcends the five khandhas, you know, that is also one of the key teachings that Ajahn Chah received from, from his teacher, Venerable Ajahn Man. Ajahn Chah was only with Ajahn Man for three days. And he didn't spend long with his teacher. I believe on the third night that he was there, Venerable Ajahn Man gave this particular teaching, which was that that which is aware of the mind objects of the five khandhas is intrinsically separate and transcendent from that. If the mind that is aware was not transcendent of the five khandhas, liberation would be impossible. But because that quality of awareness is intrinsically, say, transcendent and not limited by the five khandhas, that's why liberation is possible. And for the young Ajahn Chah, he'd only been a monk about, let's see, that was 1949, so I think he'd been a monk about nine, ten years by that time. As he put it, when well, the light came on... <laughs> And uh, he was very struck by that, and that was like a, an informing insight for his practice ever since, that there has to be a quality of awareness which is outside of the five khandhas, which knows the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, and is not limited by that. Otherwise, liberation would be impossible. And similarly, in this teaching, the Buddha is spelling it out. You know, ati bhikkhuwe ajatang abhutang akatang asankatang. You know, there is... <laughs> this unborn, unoriginated, there is this transcendent reality. Another uh, very uh, closely related teaching is uh, the first sutra in that chapter 8, Udana chapter 8, sutra number 1. We haven't got the, the text here, but the Buddha points out there is that ayatana, and the word ayatana means a, a sphere of being or a domain, a dimension is a good word. There is that dimension, that ayatana, where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no wind. The four elements don't apply. There is no dying, no reappearance, no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no standing still. It has no basis, no development, and no support. This, I tell you, is the end of suffering. So again, to the habits of self-centered thinking, and I think, oh, that sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> like no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no basis, no support. Eek! You know, it feels like threatening or, or dangerous. And again, it's sort of it's dangerous. What's threatening to the ego and to the habits of self-centered thinking? If it's taken from the Dhamma perspective, when the Buddha says this is the end of suffering, this is nibbana, this is the nature of the, the liberated quality of being, then. 
it's challenging our habits of I am this person passing through time, I am in this place, this is my name. It's like all those usual reference points that we are familiar with, they're not there. So to the ego it feels like, so there's nothing. It's just kind of, it's a big blank nothing. Eek! That sounds really boring. Can I, you know, what about my friends? Can I take my dog? You know. Uh, so these kind of teachings, uh, people are certainly in the, the Theravada world, I'm not sure, in the northern Buddhist world, but in the southern Buddhist world, sometimes people find these teachings quite off-putting or challenging. Oh, I don't want to go to Nibbana, it sounds horrible. You know, it's not very cozy, is it? <laughs> and so even though the Buddha finishes it by saying, this is the end of suffering, it's like, well, it doesn't sound very nice to me. Yeah. I think I'd just like to make some merit and be born in a heavenly realm, you know. And that does happen. People say, I don't want to develop insight. I don't want to become a stream entry because, yeah, it means uh, I've only got seven more lifetimes before Nibbana. And then, mm. <laughs> if people did have that kind of attitude, then usually teachers like Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Buddhadasa would, <laughs> as we say in English, would give them short shrift. As they would get quite a teasing or they have a few wisecracks and a misunderstanding pointed out to them. But it's understandable. It's sort of human because these are our normal reference points. You know, no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no standing still, and no dying, no reappearance. It's like all that no, 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 no. But why would the Buddha say this is the end of dukkha? <laughs> it's easy to see how it might be misinterpreted as annihilation. But as I was saying yesterday, with the development of insight, there's a necessity to let go of all of the familiar reference points. Time, the Dhamma is timeless. So how can you imagine timelessness? Dhamma is unlocated, we're talking about unlocatedness. How can you imagine unlocatedness? Unless you're a quantum physicist, you know, you like equations for it, but <laughs> still to get the feeling of unlocatedness, uh, letting go of identity, letting go of cause and effect. Another way Ajahn Chah would talk about this quality of Nibbana, he would say is outside of cause and above effect. Again, forgive my poor Thai pronunciation. Outside of cause, above effect. So again, this not this, not that, letting go and know this, know that. In the practice, when there is those moments of letting go of identity, letting go of time, letting go of these normal reference points, the felt experience of that, just like after posing the question, who am I, what's present is simplicity, spaciousness, kind of joyfulness, uh, and ease, uh, and naturalness. It's really nice. <laughs> you could say the experience of the normal reference points falling away is not a loss to the jitta, to the ego it's a loss, but to the heart itself it manifests as freedom, simplicity, naturalness, and as I said, a quiet normality. It's like, ah, back to normal. <laughs> and there's a profound ease that goes with that. In the, the event at Bodhgaya, probably many of you know, was a two-week-long session they have every year organized by the Tripitaka Chanting Council. They've been organizing this recitation of the whole Pali Tipitaka section by section for the last 17 years. This was the 17th year they've done this. They were just finishing the Sutta Pitaka, the collection of discourses. The last two sections are the questions of King Melinda 
and the Petako Pedesa, which is an analysis of how to study and uh, investigate the, the canon. So I was doing some commentary on the questions of King Melinda, and I used the part of those dialogues about Nibbana. And one of the passages in the questions of King Melinda, it makes a statement about Nibbana, about the, that experience of ultimate reality, that uh, Nibbana is neither past, future, nor present. It is neither produced, nor not produced, nor to be produced. Yet it is real, it exists, and it can be realized. Again, there are all these, not this, not that, you know, letting go of the usual structures. You know, nibbana is not a place, there's no place you can find Nibbana, yet it, it is real. Part of the development of insight into not-self, to letting go of self-view, is kind of we need to be prepared to let go of our familiar landmarks, even if they're, they're quite cherished, like... Like yesterday, even if our landmarks are, I'm a bit of a failure, I'm a, I'm a brilliant wounded fragment, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a very good meditator. That's even that, yeah, I'm, I'm not very good. That can be something we hang on to. That's our, our chosen identity, even though it might not be a very glamorous one. It's mine. <laughs> it's what I am. This is, this is what I've got. And so those favored roles and identities, those habits of thinking, are all to be let go of. If the heart really aspires to freedom and to, to that quality of peace and ease and fulfillment, then our kind of relishing or cherishing of those identities and habits and our favored refuges, that, needs to, that relinquishment of those cherished qualities needs to be part of it. Rather like uh, letting go of your favorite toys when you were children, a little kind of... <laughs> The little teddy bear that you still keep, or the, the favorite uh, cars and dolls and, and pictures that, that we had, or things that were important to us as small children, there's a, a need to change the relationship that we have to those objects, that, that aspect. There's no need to throw things away or get rid of, but we can recognize, oh yeah, I remember that was so important to me, that was so precious, that was so beloved, but now it's changed. This gentleman was asking about stream entry. And one of the other aspects of stream entry I didn't mention yesterday, which is helpful to consider in this context, is another way of talking about stream entry, that, that breakthrough to the sort of guaranteed uh, enlightenment, is called a change of lineage, a gotrabu. Gotra means your, your family or your lineage, your clan. Um, probably as a Hindi or Sanskrit word, very similar. Your gotra. Uh, so Gotrabu is the, the change of lineage. And what that's referring to is when there's insight into you know, the body is not self, feelings are not self, perception is not self, mental formations are not self, sense consciousness is not self. If the body is not self, then what does that say about our, our ancestry? Our biological parents, like my parents, uh, Pat and Tom Horner, they're my biological parents. They passed away a long time ago. But if the body is not self, and all, you know, the mind is not self, then what does that say about our ancestry? Where do we come from? And so this term, gotrabu, is uh, if you're letting go of identification with the body, you're also letting go of identification with the family, with your biological ancestry, all the way back to the, the blue-green algae in the warm tide pools <laughs> a billion years ago or more. So that 
change of lineage is rather than seeing your biological parents as your origin, your source, and, and all the grandparents and ancestors before, the change is to see the Dhamma as our source, our ancestry. That's the lineage, is recognizing that this jitta is, uh, as I say, uh, born of the Dhamma, the Tamajati. In the Thai language, Tamachat means natural. It comes from the Pali word Dhammajati, born of the Dhamma. And so that, that change of lineage, uh, again, it's a loss. Like, oh, I like my family. Well, most of them. <laughs> you know. like, well, that's the betrayal. That's unfaithful. That's disrespectful. But it's also recognizing, well, actually nothing has been lost. It's more like the heart is opening up to what has been a more profound reality all along, but you just weren't aware of it. It's like we thought that this was where we came from or, or the substance of who and what we are and that uh, letting go of attachment to the family, to the body, to the personality. It's not disrespecting the family, it's just seeing that, that all of us are born of the Dhamma. Everybody has that more profound quality of ancestry where we all come from, all of our family members as well as us. So we are all born of the Dhamma, we're all of that lineage of that more profound ancestry. So it's not disrespectful to the family, but rather it's looking beyond the normal habits of, of perception and uh, conditioning. So I'll leave the morning reflections there for now.